Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the word that is before us. And Lord, we pray that you would use it, use it this morning to teach us who we are and where we are. And with that, Lord, we pray that you would instruct us what we are to do. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Genesis chapter 1, and we will be looking, we'll be looking at a number of statements in this context, but in particular, what I want to think with you about this morning is Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28. So I'm going to start off just by reading Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. We read here. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Um, It's a magnificent passage that we have before us. And Last week, we, we started out in Genesis 1, and really the, the overarching point of last week was that God created in the beginning. And this week, the overarching point here that, that I want to get across is that what God created is a cosmic temple. What God created is a cosmic... Now, that may, that may sound crazy to you. You may be sitting there thinking to yourself, I think our pastor has at last lost it all together. Or maybe you're so used to me saying these kinds of things that you know exactly what I'm talking about. That's okay. Either way, what I'm going to try to demonstrate to you is that Moses actually means to present it this way. Moses means for us to, as, he, as we read the creation account, he means for us to think in terms of, oh, this place is a temple. But the way that he communicates, he he takes so much for granted because his audience shares so much information with him that it would be kind of like me saying, yesterday, the cardinals really put it to the blue devils. And and you wouldn't need to, most of you wouldn't need for me to tell you that the Louisville Cardinals basketball team defeated the Duke Blue Devils and that Dick Vitale wasn't even commenting on the game. So, you know, we share so much cultural information that there's a lot I don't have to explain to you when I communicate this way, and yet I want to try to show that this is exactly what Moses is doing. He's, he means to be presenting the world in these terms. And so let's start with, with just comparing some elements of the way that Moses presents the creation with the way that he then presents the tabernacle. So I want to start by inviting you to look with me at Genesis 2, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 3 here. Um, Moses writes, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. 
And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So you have this this statement that Moses has finished the work of creation and then that he rests and then he blesses it. Look with me over at the end of the book of Exodus where we read about the end of the work on the tabernacle. And let me draw your attention to Exodus 39 verse 32 where here Moses writes, thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meaning was finished. It's the exact same language both in English and in Hebrew that we have regarding the completion of the creation. And then look at Exodus 39, verse 43. And Moses saw all the work. That sounds like Genesis 1, doesn't it? God saw all that he had made. And and we read here, And behold, they had done it as the Lord commanded, so had they done it. Then Moses blessed them. So what I'm suggesting to you is that Moses has written up the tabernacle account in such a way that he means for people to think of the Garden of Eden. And then if you start thinking in those ways, you start noticing all these similarities between the tabernacle and what would later be true of the temple and the Garden of Eden. For instance, both are entered from the east. So uh, they get driven out of the Garden of Eden and they start You know, they get driven out from the east and the cherubim are placed at the east to guard the way to the tree of life. The the tabernacle and the temple are both going to face east and be entered from the east. And all through the tabernacle, as Ryan read so well earlier, there are these cherubim that are, are decorating the place. And it's as though these cherubim are guarding the holy place in the same way that the cherubim and the flaming sword were guarding the way to the tree of life. And then similarly, along these same lines, um, not only is it entered from the east and and guarded by the cherubim, with, with the tabernacle, what you eventually have is you have the holy of holies, and then outside that you've got the holy place, and then outside that you've got the whole camp, and everything in the camp has to be clean. Well, very similarly... With, with the Garden of Eden, if you look with me back at Genesis chapter 2, look with me at Genesis 2, and let's start reading at verse 8. We read here, Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil." A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And and if we put this picture together, what it sounds like is that the garden is a subset of the wider place called Eden because this river flows out of Eden to water the garden. And then outside that, you've got all the dry lands. So I'm suggesting to you that the camp of Israel corresponds to all the dry lands and then that the holy place of Israel corresponds to Eden, and then the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest can enter, corresponds to the garden. So that when God puts the man in the garden, it's almost as though he has installed the high priest in the temple. And interestingly, related on that note, look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. We read here, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. 
And those two terms are used elsewhere in the Pentateuch. In Numbers chapter 3, verse 9, maybe verse 8. Yeah, it's Numbers 3, verse 8, to describe the way that the Levites are to serve and guard, but it's the same two Hebrew terms, work and keep, the tabernacle. So Adam is doing in the garden, in the in the, in the Holy of Holies, as it were, prior to anything being defiled by uncleanness, he's doing the same thing that the Levites will later do with reference to the tabernacle. And then uh, also, you, you notice there, there are these rivers. This river flows out of the Garden of Eden, and then it becomes the headwaters of these four rivers there in Genesis 2.10. Well, uh, later in, in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel 47, we're going to read about a new temple, And out of that new temple is going to flow a river. And then over in Revelation chapter 22, we're going to read about the fulfillment of the temple. And this is what Denny read earlier in the service. The the reason the New Jerusalem is four square, it's a perfect cube, is because symbolically the New Jerusalem represents the Holy of Holies in fulfillment of the Garden of Eden. It's as though what John is saying is that when God brings the New Jerusalem down out of heaven... Really what it's going to be is a new and better Garden of Eden, which fulfills the Holy of Holies. And then, of course, that river, the river of life, flows out of that new city. Also, along these lines, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, we're, we're not in Genesis 3 today, but in Genesis 3, 8, God is walking in the garden. And in a number of significant texts, Leviticus 26 um, Deuteronomy chapter 23 and 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Lord is described as walking in the midst of the camp of Israel. And so God walks in the midst of the camp once they have the tabernacle constructed in the same way that he had walked in the Garden of Eden. So there are, all these, there are lots and lots of similarities and lots and lots of really interesting details, things like the fact that the word that is translated lights in Genesis 1, when Genesis 1.14, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens, the only place that word is used elsewhere in, in the Pentateuch is when Moses describes those lights on the lampstand. And, and some scholars suggest that the reason Moses doesn't just call it the sun and the moon right off, the reason he, he says lights is because he's planning to forge this connection between the lights on the lampstand and the lights that God put uh, in in the sky when he made the two great lights. Also, the lampstand itself, while while Ryan was reading, I I got dictionary.com out and looked up the word calyxes. Did you notice that word? C-A-L-Y-X. It occurred several times in that passage. I actually looked it up yesterday, but I didn't remember what it means. So, it's the outermost group of floral parts. So that word calyx, it's like part of a plant. And if you listen to that description of the lampstand, it's got branches, it's got stems, and where you actually put the oil for the light, those are referred to as almond blossoms. It's like Moses is saying, hey, this is a tree. This tree that you're going to put in the holy place symbolizes these sacred trees that were in the Garden of Eden. So, so what? So what? So God created a cosmic temple, so what? Well, it has implications, doesn't it? It has implications about what this place is for. And I would just invite you to think with me about what a temple is for. What's a temple for? Uh, 
A temple is a place where, where a god, the god who is worshipped in that temple, is present, a place where he reigns, a place where he is served, and a place where he is worshipped. And what Moses is doing is he's declaring that's what the cosmos is for. The whole world is a place where God intends to be present, he intends to be known, he intends to be served, he intends to be worshipped. He intends to reign in this place. This place is his temple. Do you remember Isaiah chapter 66? Isaiah declares, um, he, he speaks for the Lord, and the Lord says through Isaiah, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Do you remember what the footstool of the Lord is in the Old Testament? It's the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. And Isaiah is saying, you need to beware any misconceptions. That little cube there is not my house. And that little box there is not my footstool. The earth is my footstool. And then this informs the question that he goes on to ask, what is the house that you would build for me? Isaiah, the Lord is saying through Isaiah, this whole place is going to be holy to the Lord. So the earth is a cosmic temple. It's a place where God intends to be present with his people. He intends to reign over his people and be served and worshipped by his people. And it, and, and this all informs what it is that God has made man after his likeness and in his image. Uh, perhaps those terms call to mind Exodus chapter 20. Now, now the, the Hebrew behind Genesis 1.26 and Exodus chapter 20 verse 4 uses different Hebrew terms, but they're synonymous enough to be translated the exact same way in English. Listen to Exodus chapter 20 verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. I, I was talking to Matt about this before the service, and he said to me, he's already made it. And that's exactly right. When God built his temple, and, and really, you know, Satan, I've said this before, I'll say it again, Satan is not a creator. Satan is someone who does not come up with new ideas for himself. What he does is he takes God's good ideas and he perverts them and he twists them and then he tries to sell his cheap knockoffs that have been ruined. And so what Satan has done with all the idolaters of the world is he's talked them into building these little temples that represent the place where these little false gods reign over their domain. And then he's talked to these people to put into those little temples a, a carved image, a block of wood or stone or molten metal that's been shaped, that's supposed to, rep, supposed to be the visible image of the invisible God. And in the real story, the living and true God didn't build a little house. He built the world, and then he didn't create a little carved rock or hacked up piece of wood he built a human being, a living, breathing, worshiping, walking and talking, live representation of himself. That's the real story. So if last week we were asking the question, 
Where did the world come from? And we found the answer, well, God created it all very good in the beginning. This week, we can ask the questions, what's the world for? It's for God. The world is a place for God to inhabit, for God to be known. We can ask the question, who are we? And we've started to get an answer to that question. When, when God makes us in his image and likeness, what he does is he creates a, a visible representation of his own inv- invisible self. And this visible representation of the invisible God is meant to represent God in the cosmic temple. And we can just think through what are the implications of that? What are, what are the responsibilities that the visible representation of the invisible God, what, repre- what responsibilities do human beings have? Well, we exist to, to make known in creation in all the world the presence of God. We exist to bring to bear on all creation the character of God. We exist to make it so that God reigns in all the world. That's what we're for. So God's character, God's presence, God's reign, God's authority... This is what we exist to make real in life, everywhere we are. Look at, look at what the Lord says there in Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Look at the next words. Let them have dominion. Dominion is a reigning word. And and. Essentially, what the Lord is saying is, I am going to impart my authority to my image bearer. So as, if you're a human being in this room, if you can hear the sound of my, my voice, you are made in the image and likeness of God to reign over God's world. And, and this just has massive implications for who we are as human beings. And, and we can, all we have to do is contrast it with other cultures where they don't think of people this way. I'm, I happen to be wearing today a, a gift that was given to me from the land of India, and they don't think of people this way in India. They have this class system, and the people at the bottom of that class system, they are to be left untouchables. You are not to help them, because in their, in my opinion, their perverse and demonic and wicked worldview... In their view, those people need to be reincarnated up through the class system. And if you try to help those people at the lower lower echelons of that class system, you're going to prohibit their advance in this life. So you don't help them. And and then there are things like this custom that they have where if if a husband dies, the wife is supposed to throw herself on the funeral pyre um, as, as part of her duty. This is this is this is all growing out of the fact that they don't believe. That this living good God created all human beings in his own image and likeness. And their beliefs are being outworked, worked out in, in their culture, their customs. There, there are these wonderful stories about the early church. There, there's this Roman emperor named Julian the Apostate who was shamed into encouraging his people 
his Roman people to take care of the poor and needy in Roman society because the Christians were taking care of the poor and needy. And there are these wonderful, in fact, I'm gonna, I want to read to you so I don't get this wrong, uh, these early um, Christians that, that you may be familiar with their names because they were famous theologians, um, uh, Basil uh, of Caesarea, the Cappadocian fathers, who these guys are, and, and then his younger brother, Gregory of Nazianzus. Listen to what this guy Tom Holland writes about them. Um, he, he reports that Basil and Gregory were devoted to the poor and needy of their culture, and particularly Christians, and they said this, do not despise these people in their objection, abjection. Do not think they merit no respect. Reflect on who they are, and you will understand their dignity. He's talking about them being in the image and likeness of God. He says, they have taken upon them the person of our Savior, for he, the compassionate, has given them his own person. What he's saying is, Jesus thought enough of human beings to die for them, so you should care for them. And then it goes on, dignity, Tom Holland writes, which no philosopher had ever taught might be possessed by the stinking, toiling masses was for all. There was no human existence so wretched, none so despised or vulnerable, that it did not bear witness to the image of God. And, and so Basil, who had, before he was called into ministry, he had actually studied medicine. And he founded the first hospital in the history of the world to care for people in need. And then his brother Gregory, his brother Gregory was one of the, the very first advocates for the abolition of all slavery. He, 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 he's essentially arguing, these people are made in the image and likeness of God. They should not be enslaved by other human beings. And, and their sister, Macrina, we, we, uh, our family, we know a little girl named Macrina. Um, their sister, Macrina, um, she, this Tom Holland writes, um, I just want to read this to you, what the implications might be for infants tossed out with the trash was best demonstrated not by Basil nor by Gregory, but by their sister. So, in the ancient world, they didn't have these, these surgical procedures to get rid of unwanted children. So the, the women would give birth to them, and then they would just leave the infants in, in the refuse heaps. And Macrina, the eldest of nine siblings, was in many ways the most influential of all these kids. And um, what she did was she would tour these places where she knew there were likely babies who had been left. And she would gather these infants up, and then she would... She would give them a life. She would raise them and care for them. It's, it's really, it's a glorious outworking of Christian theology. It's beautiful. It's a stunning thing to be made in the image and likeness of God. You know, we sing that song that has that line, uh, two wonders here that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness. We... We are people who are endowed with incalculable value. And, and here, maybe, have you seen that? Uh, I think it's a Geico commercial where uh, 
Pinocchio is a terrible motivational speaker. <laughs> and he says, I'm looking at a room full of potential. You have potential. And his nose starts to grow. And he says, oh, boy. Well, that's not going to happen here. I'm not Pinocchio. But you people are made in the image and likeness of God. You people are made in the image and likeness. Just look at what you've figured out how to do. It's astonishing. And, and, and so what is possible for a, for a church like this? What's possible for you? You should put no limits on what you think the Lord might be able to accomplish. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the, over the uh, birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We're going to talk next week, Lord willing, about verse 27 in more detail, what it is that we're made in the, in the uh, male and female in the image and likeness of God. Look at verse 28. And God blessed them. Here, I mentioned this last week, but I just want to read you these statements from this ancient document called Atrahasis. It's a, it's a creation account. Listen, listen to the, the perverted, warped, distorted account of creation here. When the gods, instead of man, did the work, bore the loads, the gods' load was too great, the work too hard, the trouble too much. And so I'm just going to skip ahead here. The gods start complaining and they say, the load is excessive. It is killing us. So, so they all go and, and complain to the high God. And they say again, the load is excessive. It is killing us. Our work is too hard. The trouble too much. And, and so then the narrator agrees. Their work was indeed too hard. Their trouble was too much. And so eventually they conclude, let man bear the load of the gods. And let man bear the... And, and, and it's repeated. And, and, then, and then it's interesting. They actually... Um, they, they go to this one god who has the ability to create man. And she says, if he gives me clay, then I will do it. And then a few lines later, she says... One of the gods should be slaughtered, and the gods can be purified by immersion. That's interesting. They're going to slaughter one of the gods, and then they're going to immerse one another in the blood of this killed god. I mean, does this sound familiar? Does this sound... You know, I read something like this, and, and it, it, it calls to mind the way that one of the early church fathers said the demons had taken the truth and sort of sprinkled it through the myths trying to inoculate people against Christianity. One God shall be slaughtered, and the gods can be purified by immersion. Nintu, this female God who's going to do this, shall mix clay with his flesh and his blood. Then a God and a man will be mixed together in clay. Let us hear the drum beat forever after. Let a ghost come into existence from the God's flesh. Now, compare that. And, and listen, listen to Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So what, what I'm suggesting to you is that by some demonic influence, this story of Atrahasis, it, it's like there are glimmers of the truth. Uh, the God of the Bible, though, he didn't need slave labor. 
His work in creation shows us he, he lacks no wisdom, he lacks no power, he is not at all taxed by the work of creation. He is not resting because he's tired from the work of creation. He's resting because this is what gods do in temples. This is what the God does in his temple once his work is done. That's why he's resting. And, and that's what our call to worship was this morning, Psalm 132, reflection of these same ideas. The Lord has chosen Zion, and he has said, this is my dwelling place, there I will rest. That's what he says in Psalm 132, verses 13 and 14. So same ideas. The temple, once it's completed, it's like the Garden of Eden, where God rests after the work of creation is done. And the true God, he doesn't need slave labor but he does want image bearers that out of his goodness, out of the fullness of who he is, he grants to them the, the opportunity, the right to represent him in his world. And look at what he does. He blesses them. He's not complaining as they will in Atrahasis that the gods will complain that these people that they made are making too much noise and so they decide to wipe them out with the flood. No, God creates out of the fullness of who he is and he blesses the people that he's made. And look at, look at verse 28, it goes on to say, And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. He wants more people. And the reason is so that they will fill the earth and subdue it. So often when I, when I teach this in class, I'll write these three circles up on a whiteboard where I'll have the innermost circle being the garden and then the circle right out that being Eden, and then the one outside that being all the dry lands of the whole world. And then I'll just start drawing these arrows that go out in every direction. Because I think what God is saying to Adam is, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and make it all like the Garden of Eden. Make the whole world a place where the living God is going to walk with man in the cool of the day. Now you think about this, he can't do that alone, can he? Adam can't do that alone. Adam's not going to be able to fill the earth and subdue it alone. No, he's going to have to have a good relationship with Eve, and they're going to have to have lots of kids, and then they're going to have to train those kids. They're going to have to raise those kids up in the fear and admonition of the Lord so that those kids know that they bear the image and likeness of God, and it's their responsibility to bring God's authority and God's character and God's presence and God's ways to every corner of creation. That's their job. I, I think when God puts the man in the garden in Genesis 2.15, we get like an outworking of this. So if you, if you look at Genesis 2.15 and sort of set it next to Genesis 1.28, look at 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it. And I would suggest that that corresponds to... Um, Fill the earth and subdue it. Subdue the earth, work the garden. And then he goes on, and keep it. And I would suggest that the keeping of the garden is like an outworking of have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So you can't be letting those elephants walk through the daisies, you know? You gotta keep the garden, you gotta protect it. And I think this, we're not to this yet, but I think it also implies things like you got to watch out for snakes. You can't be letting unclean uh, serpents, Adam, into the garden. You need to protect it. You need to keep it, guard it. So the garden is like a holy place, and it's meant to be extended. 
And it's meant to be filled with with those who bear the image and likeness of God. And in some ways, Genesis is such a tragic story. I would just invite you to look over at uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 11. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. I'll read it to you. Now the earth, the land, was corrupt in God's sight. It's as though this pure, undefiled garden has been so totally wasted and ruined. And the next words, and the earth was filled with violence. It's not what God wanted. God wanted to fill the world with his glory. God wanted to fill the world with people who, who love him, who love one another. And instead, the, the world was filled with violence. And, and you know, you, you might even be sitting here thinking to yourself, okay, I'm made in the image and likeness of God. How am I supposed to bring to bear God's character in my world? How am I supposed to do this at home and at work or at school or in this neighborhood or wherever? How, how am I supposed to do this? And, and praise God, uh, we can say Christ has shown us how. Jesus comes, Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts with the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So I think if we ask ourselves, okay, what is the character of God supposed to look like in the world? The character of Christ. And, and don't miss this, I can't do it, you can't do it, Adam couldn't do it, no human being could do it except Jesus. But he did it, and he, and he broke sin, and he overcame death, and he made it so that those who look to him, Psalm 34, are radiant. He made it so that if you will follow Christ, if you will gaze on him, 2 Corinthians 3.18 we all with unveiled face are being transformed from one degree of glory to another into the same image. So if you will worship Jesus, you will be renewed in the image of God and you can fulfill your created purpose. You can be what God has made you to be. And then, you know, you can think about Colossians 1.6 uh, uh, Colossians 1, in light of Genesis 1.28 God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Paul says to the Colossians in Colossians 1.6 that the gospel is bearing fruit and growing since they heard about it. So what God wanted when he put Adam in the garden was for him and Eve to multiply and reproduce and fill the world with his image bearers. And what Jesus wants the church to do is really the same thing. He wants us to multiply, to reproduce, to have experienced the gospel and then gaze on the glory of Christ, become more and more like Jesus. Like, like, I mean, Basil and Gregory and Macrina, they were sinners. And they held some whacked ideas, some things that I did not read to you out of this book because I don't want, I mean, you know, they're just like us, messed up in all kinds of ways. But they got some things really right. Really what they got right was the gospel and the Lord had taken hold of their hearts and they did their best to live it out, which is what we're trying to do. And... 
And we want to we experience in our day the gospel bearing fruit and growing. So let me just offer you a, a few statements from the New Testament that, that, that I think really apply um, what, what we're called to here. And, and these, I'm just going to take, I'm going to, because of time, I'm going to eliminate some things and just give you a couple of ideas from, from 1 Peter. If you want to turn there and look, look with me at this, you can. But look at what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 and following. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action. Literally, what he says there is girding up the loins of your minds. It's like he's saying, uh, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we've experienced the new exodus in the same way that the Israelites girded up their loins and fled Egypt. You people need to gird up the loins of your minds. And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will, that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, if you think the Garden of Eden would have been a great place to live, just wait for heaven. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The garden would have been great. Heaven's going to be better. The new heavens and new earth, the new Jerusalem, it's going to fulfill what the garden was. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. One of the implications of creation being a cosmic temple is that we can take those regulations for holiness in books like Leviticus and Numbers, and it's like you can just say, well, this is the way it's supposed to be in all the world. And there are all those warnings in like Numbers 3, Numbers 4, about how those Kohathites who handle the holy things, they should not even look on the holy things. You can think of the Isaiah 6 cherubim clothes covering their eyes. They shall not even look on the holy things lest they die. God is holy, and we're called to holiness. And again, this is something that we can pursue through Christ because of what he's done. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Adam was like a king in the garden. Let them have dominion. He was also like a priest, like the high priest in the garden. Genesis 2.15, working and keeping the garden. Listen, Remember what Adam was also, in a way, the son of God. We'll see this when we get to Genesis 5. And, and God said of the nation of Israel, Exodus 4, told Moses, go say to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son, let my son go. Then he gets them out to, the, to Mount Sinai, and he says to them, they are a kingdom of priests. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Peter says this is what Christians are. 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You might be thinking to me, I thought you were going to give us application. This is your application. This is who you are. Don't despise yourself. Don't take pride in your own accomplishments. Don't identify with something less than this. And live out your identity. Our calling as those in the image and likeness of God, is to make the invisible character, presence, reign, and authority of God visible in our lives. We represent Him to fill the cosmic temple with His glory. And the remarkable thing is that 
is that as people come to know God, the Spirit of God indwells them. And Paul says to believers in 1 Corinthians 3.6, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? The temple is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. One day, it's going to be the whole world. But right now, the temp- this, is the, this is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And as people turn from sin and trust in Christ, it's like the temple grows as disciples are made, as the gospel bears fruit and grows. Let's pray together. Father, we never would have dreamed that these things were so. Lord, I confess that in my, in my ignorance, before you caused the light of Scripture to tell me the truth, it never even occurred to me that the world was your holy dwelling place that you created for your glory. So, Lord, we we repent, I repent, of my self-centeredness and my ignorance of you. And, Lord, we also want to beseech you to make us more and more aware of what is entailed by the fact that this place was made for you, that heaven is your throne and the earth is your footstool. And, Lord, we pray that you would give us a a holy fear of you. We pray, Lord, that you would make us feel our worth and our unworthiness and that it would make us love Christ all the more. And we pray that the experience of looking to him and being made radiant would be ours, Lord. We, we want to be transformed into that image as we behold your glory in the face of Christ. And Father, we pray that you would do more among us than we can begin to think possible for those who bear your image, whether they are the unborn or the indigent, the needy around us, Lord. We pray that you would make us distinct. And we ask, Lord, that you'd make it so that people are amazed at the way that we treat human beings who bear your image. And we pray that their amazement would result in us having opportunities to share with them the hope that is within us. Lord, we ask this because we want to see your name made great in all the earth. And so we pray that you would be at work, that you'd be glorified, and that you would cause your name to be high in our hearts. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.